So Lisa and I just flew back last night from uh, St. Louis, as I said earlier, seeing my parents and uh, my brother and uh, my family there. And uh, while I'm in St. Louis, I am always very intentional to eat at two places. And one is Emo's Pizza, which you probably haven't heard of, but it's um, a St. Louis style pizza. It's a totally different style than you'll find anywhere else. And then White Castle, which I'm sure you've heard of because they are globally famous. And I ate there in the matter of just a few short days, uh, four or five times. And uh, I made sure that anytime I passed one, I would sneak in and just grab a couple. Um, I uh, we were coming home from something and it was me and Lisa in the car and my parents in the car. And um, I said, I have got to go to the bathroom so bad. We were coming back from, we had driven over into Illinois and I said, I got to go to the bathroom so bad. And I pulled into a gas station, but it looked kind of seedy and gross. And so I said, let me find somewhere else. And it just so happened there was a White Castle right across the corner. And I said, uh, Lisa, hand me my wallet. I don't want to be one of those guys that uses their bathroom but doesn't buy anything. And so, because I'm a man of integrity and character. And uh, now, if I told you that White Castle hamburgers were the best hamburger ever, you would possibly respond with either skepticism because you haven't tried them or cynicism and just uh, uh, doubt or um, possibly you already know in your mind and your heart what the best one is. Maybe you're an in and out devotee, a loyalist, uh, or maybe you've had something that your, your, your brother-in-law makes on the grill, but most of you would probably emotionally or intellectually push back on that if I made such a definitive declaration that White Castle hamburgers were the best hamburger in the world. You would be especially emotional if I said that White Castle is the only authentic, original, it is the only hamburger in the world. Everything else is a copy, everything else is an imitation, everything else is a counterfeit. There does not exist another authentic, genuine hamburger other than White Castle. That would probably met with just sort of an incredulous uh, disdain for somebody who would believe such an outrageous statement like that. Or if I said it about the St. Louis Cardinals are not only the best, which their record currently would not indicate so, but if I said truthfully they're the only legitimate baseball team or I said that about anything else, not just the best of it, but the only of it, it would produce some sort of vitriolic, emotional, angry, uh, uh, just outraged response from most people. That's just such a dumb thing to say. And if it's dumb of us to say that or emotionally triggering to say that about White Castle being the only real hamburger or this team or this restaurant or this thing being the only real authentic thing. Imagine the audacity for someone to say that there is a heaven and there is only one way to heaven. There is only one true God who has a son 
And his son, Jesus, is the only way to get there. You think about the fact that there are five major world religions. There's Christianity, there's uh, uh, um, Judaism, there's Hinduism, there's Buddhism, and then there's Islam. And those five major world religions all have a belief system that contradict each other's belief system. I mean, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all claim to worship the same God of the Old Testament, the same God mentioned in the Old Testament, yet none of us in those three world religions agree on who Jesus is and what role he has in our life. So even where we do agree, there is a major departure of agreement. Hindus believe in 33 major gods and believe that every person possesses a form of deity, so there are over 330 million gods here just in the US. Buddhists don't believe in God. They believe that Buddha achieved perfection in his life and that he has reappeared through reincarnation over the past 2,500 years. Just the five major world religions all contradict each other. And so to say that we have the truth, that Jesus is the only way to heaven is obviously going to get some sort of response from people. But let me tell you what the Bible says about Jesus. John 1, 10 through 13. Although he, Jesus, made the world, the world didn't recognize him when he came, didn't recognize him for who he was. Even in his own land, and among his own people, the Jews, he was not accepted. Bible says he came first to the Jews. And only a few would welcome and receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. All they needed to do was trust him to save them. And those who believe this are reborn, not a physical rebirth resulting from human passion or a plan, but from the will of God. So the Bible says that Jesus came and he was not recognized as the son of God, as the creator of the world, but he did create the world. And only a few would accept him, but those who did accept him, they had the right to be children of God and be saved. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. You and I are at a crossroads. Every one of us comes to a crossroads in our life in which we must answer this question. Do I believe Jesus is who he says he is. Do I believe that the Bible is right about Jesus? Do I accept that? And if so, then is Jesus the only way to heaven? This is bigger than White Castle. I can't imagine anything bigger, but this is bigger than White Castle. We have to ask that question. Every single person needs to ask that question because every person who meets a claim in which one must decide whether that claim is true or false, there are going to be, in reality, if that claim is substantial at all, there's going to be consequences or reward to how you respond to that claim. But I'm gonna come at you with what I hope is a reasonable way to answer that question. In other words, I don't think that we in Christians should just go, yes, he is, and I don't wanna talk about it, and anybody who says otherwise is a jerk and they're going to hell. I don't think that's a reasonable, logical, thoughtful way to approach that. 
Today, next week, and the week after, we're gonna be touching on some of these difficult to talk about things. Like for instance, in the upcoming weeks, we're gonna be talking about if God is good, why does evil exist, right? But today, I think this is a question worth answering. And so grab your notes if you don't already have them out. To reach a reasonable answer to the question, how do I know that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Here's the first thing. I have to accept that no matter what I believe, it's based on authority and faith. Every belief system. I'm gonna lay this groundwork because I think it's important for us intellectually, logically to have this, no matter what you believe. You might be sitting here and say, I don't even believe in God, much less Jesus. I don't believe there's a heaven. I don't believe there's a hell. I believe we're worm food once we die. That's fine. I just want you to listen to what I'm about to say because I think you'll find agreement in it that every single thing we do believe is based on authority and faith. Authority is um, experienced either internally or externally. Internal authority is this. It's what we think. It's what we feel. It's what we've decided. It's what we say. It's what we've experienced. I say this. Well, I believe this. That's internal authority. That's that you've made yourself the final authority on this thing and that's all you need to reach a conclusion, to reach a belief system about a thing, whether it's political or spiritual or financial or, or, or some opinion, some matter of importance that gets discussed. You just say, well, I think and I feel. That, that is internal authority. You are now the authority on that thing, right? And then there's external authority. And that is experienced through a book or a religion or a practice or a tradition or a study that you did or someone else did, a, a teacher, a textbook, a professor, a politician, a, a podcast, etc. Anything that happens outside of you that you've accepted that that has been authoritative, it has enough authority that you place your trust in that authority and that is faith. It's the experiencing something outside of you and placing your trust in that even though you personally haven't experienced it. Now, I think an atheist, if there were an atheist in the room, you would agree that faith is, this is the traditional expression of what faith is to an atheist, is that faith is a belief in something that doesn't have the benefit of evidence to support it. And I understand where that might come from, but I think it's, I actually think it's a little intellectually lazy and insincere. It's, it's pretty self-serving to call that faith when in reality, every single one of us expresses faith through believing something that we haven't personally verified ourselves. Say perhaps you believe that we came into existence by the path of evolution as defined in uh, Charles Darwin's On the uh, Origin of Species. That's the book most famously attributed to him and his observations made on the Galapagos Islands of the transitions of species and the environment as it impacts it. And he drew some very impressive conclusions about how we came to be over the course of millions, if not billions of years. None of us were there on the Galapagos Islands with Charles Darwin. None of us ran experiments, none of us made his observations, none of us experienced those things firsthand. 
So those who have ascribed to a belief of that transitional adaptive evolution, according to the writings of Charles Darwin, have done so by placing a faith in his findings, in his writings, in the accuracy, in the efficacy of his experiments and his observations and all the things that he did, somebody said, I find that reasonable. And we've got professors and curriculum and things that continue to advance that. And they've done so based on their own biases that say, I believe this to be true and I will build off of this and will further this belief system. That's exactly what we do in the Bible. None of us were there at any point for any point of creation, whether God used a, an explosive moment that a Catholic priest who was also a scientist described in the Big Bang Theory that the universe came into existence in one explosive instant moment and it continues to expand. Or whether God used six literal days doesn't matter, none of us were there, so we place faith in something that describes to us what actually happened. So can we all agree that we believe based on two things, authority that comes from somewhere, a Bible, a textbook, ourselves, Charles Darwin, all of our belief systems are based on internal or external authority in a faith we place that that is credible information. Second is this, we're gonna agree on that whether you wanted to or not, amen. All right, number two is this, to reach a reasonable answer on whether Jesus is the only way to heaven, I have to accept that number two, if the Bible is a reliable source, if the Bible is a reliable source, then I can believe what it says. Whatever authority we place our faith in, I hope that you place your whole faith in it. It's difficult to rely on the tenets of any belief system if you cherry pick which ones are legitimate, which ones are true, which ones are untrue. So it's important that whatever you believe in, that you believe that that is legitimate, that it's trustworthy. So if the Bible is a reliable authority, then you can believe what the Bible says. As Christians, the authority for us, as it pertains to truth, should be the Bible, I don't know that it always is, quite honestly, but it should be the Bible, and it should be on matters of importance. I don't know that the Bible has a voice on everything. There are things that we get caught up in, that we get excited about, that we get ourselves distracted with, that the Bible doesn't give a voice to, and therefore I don't think we should as well, right? But on matters that are really important, I believe the Bible has a voice on all of those things. And one of those really important things is that we are not just a physical body, but we are an eternal soul that is housed in a temporary physical dwelling. And when that dwelling breaks down and comes to an end, the eternal part of us, our soul, the most important part of us, continues on. And again, in accordance with the Bible, it will continue on in one of two destinations that exist in eternity. One of which was not created for us, but is a place of separation, a place where we don't get to experience the presence of God, a place where we can exclude ourselves by choice to not be with God, and in that, it is the absence of everything that's good, everything that's pleasurable, everything that's right, everything that's enjoyable, 
That place has been called a lot of different things throughout the Bible. Some of those descriptions, definitely allegorical, definitely symbolic. But what I think we can conclude is it's a very unpleasant eternal existence to be separated from the goodness of God. And then there is a place that we've ascribed in scripture the name heaven to that has physical descriptions and dimensions. If those are true, if those are accurate, if those are not poetic or allegorical, then there is an eternal physical place in which we are with the presence of God and it's euphoric, it's paradise, it's absolute pleasure. We won't know anything in our lives here that even compares with that. So the Bible says that heaven is a real place. As a matter of fact, in some way or the other, it references in 44 books of the Bible, references over 700 times heaven. Some reference, some inference of that eternal place where we go. So it's clearly an important issue and it's clearly outlined in the Bible for us to believe. Jesus himself said it's a place that he goes to prepare for us in John 14. Listen to what this says. My father's home is designed to accommodate all of you. If there were not room for everyone, I would have told you that. In other words, if anyone could be excluded from this, I would have told you that, but there's room for every single person that wants to go there. I'm gonna make arrangements for your arrival. That's part of my mission. I'll be there to greet you personally and welcome you home where we will be together. So Jesus says, not only is it a real place, I'm going there and preparing for all of you to come. Everybody gets to come. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we weren't meant to, we weren't designed to, we weren't created to stay in these bodies. So listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2. For we know that when this tent that we live in is now, uh, live in now is taken down, when we die and leave these bodies, in case nobody understood what he was saying, we will have wonderful new bodies in heaven, homes that will be ours forevermore, made for us by God himself and not by human hands. How weary we, weary we go of our present bodies. That is why we look forward to eagerly the day when we shall have heavenly bodies that we shall put on like new clothes. So there's a physical description of a place in which we get to shed off all the aches. We were talking this week just about how if you're under the age of like 30, really look into just staying there. <laughs> just hang out in that space because it really just gets bad from this point on. I have injured myself more sleeping in the last five years than I have doing anything else. Consistently wake up and just go, I can't move my neck right now. What did I do? Oh, that's right, I slept for eight hours. I just literally laid down and slept. And then I have to go to the chiropractor and how'd you do this? Uh, I think they call it sleep is what the kids are calling it these days. So I feel this. I, the older I get, the more I go, I could, I could see myself going sooner than later. But we trust the Bible as the authority on whether or not heaven is real and as followers of Christ, as Christians, as those who put their faith in God, you must on some level, intellectually, emotionally, put your faith in what the Bible says heaven is and who it's for. Third is this. To reach a reasonable answer of whether Jesus is the only way to heaven, I have to accept that. If Jesus is who he says he is, then what he says is true. Okay, so here we are. 
Whatever we believe is based on authority and faith. And as Christians, we accept the authority of the Bible. And the Bible reveals that heaven is real, but it also reveals that there is a way to get there. That way, according to the Bible, is Jesus. Now, we have to ask that, we have to stop, I think a reasonable-minded person logically stops and goes, why him though? I mean, there are a lot of people talked about in the Bible, and there are some very miraculous uh, characters in the Bible who do some pretty miraculous things. As a matter of fact, in theology, we talk about, and in, in the scholarly pursuit of understanding the Bible, we talk about Christ types. People who were precursors of Jesus, who had characteristics of Jesus, like David is a Christ type. Melchizedek, the priest in the Old Testament, is a Christ type. These are people who in some way were a foreshadowing of who Jesus would be. So why are none of them qualifiers for heaven. So we should ask ourselves, why is Jesus different than the prophet Muhammad? Or why is Jesus different than Buddha? Relying on the Bible as our authority and in which we place our trust, listen to what Jesus said. He makes a claim that none other have made. He himself claims to be God. John 5, 17 through 18 says this, but Jesus said to them, the Jewish leaders, my father never stops working. They were confronting him on uh, not honoring Sabbath and doing things when he shouldn't be doing them and on high holy days and Jesus was always getting in trouble for you shouldn't be doing this on this day or on this time or this is improper the way you're doing it. And so Jesus says, my father never stops working and so I keep working too and this made them try still harder to kill him because they said, first Jesus was breaking the law about the Sabbath day, now he says that God is his own father making himself equal with God. And if you'll look at the pattern of Jesus when the religious leaders would get all upset about things, he would call them out, he would overhear them or he would hear their thoughts and he would speak directly to it. Jesus makes no effort whatsoever to correct the connection they make that Jesus is claiming to be God. John 8, 58 says this. Jesus said the absolute truth is that I was in existence before Abraham was ever born. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. They believe their origins as a people begin with Abraham. And Jesus says, the reality is I've existed throughout eternity. So Jesus says he's God. Jesus says he's eternal. And then listen to what he says in John 10, 30. The Father and I are one. We're inseparable, you can't separate us. We are, our spirits are uh, aligned. We are of equal importance. A radical claim. And then finally, Mark 2, five through seven says this. When Jesus saw the faith of these people, he said to the paralyzed man, young man, your sins are forgiven. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, we know the only one who can forgive sins is God himself. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this man say things like that? He's speaking as if he were God. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, der doy. You're finally getting it. I am God. So if the Bible is true about heaven, 
than what's recorded of Jesus' words. We place faith and confidence in the authority of God's words that it accurately recorded the words of Jesus who on multiple occasions let everybody know that he has the authority to get us to a place that God prepared for us. And fourth and finally is this, to reach a reasonable answer to the question, is Jesus the only way to heaven? I have to accept that if Jesus is right, then everyone else has to be wrong. Listen, I, if, if, if God put me in charge of Christianity, there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't get in and a lot of others who you might think shouldn't get in that I would maybe let in. I don't like obnoxious Christians. I was talking to somebody at the gym recently. That was just to let you know I go to the gym. Um, (laughs) And uh, they were kind of talking about their their experience with the church. And I said, I gotta be honest with you, I don't like most Christians. And she was like, yeah, I think we're on the same page there. I said, because the, the ones I'm experiencing, the ones who are making the biggest splash right now, the ones who are making the biggest noise right now, I don't know, I don't think that's what God had in mind. I don't think that looks like Jesus at all. So if that's Christianity, I don't think I like most Christians. Now, I've told you that I, I, hope, I hope we are an anomaly to the rule. I hope we're the exception. I hope we're building a culture here that, that gets to say with some level of humility but some level of confidence that we're not that. So there's a lot of Christians I would probably keep out that Jesus is likely gonna let in. And there's a lot of people that I think Jesus, um, that most people think Jesus wouldn't let in that are gonna get in. And that's why I'm glad I'm not in charge is because I don't know that you and I have what it takes to guard the gate. We live in a time and a culture where we want irreconcilable ideals and beliefs and what we would call truths to be able to coexist at the same time and both be true. A poll uh, by Gallup um, found that about 85% of people believe that there is a real place called heaven. Not that 85% are identify as Christians or believe in the Bible, but believe in a real place called heaven. So there's a lot of people who believe in a real place called heaven, but would be reluctant to believe that there is an exclusive gate into that place. They wanna believe that there aren't conditions, that we all get there, that there aren't any criteria but that would sort of violate the principles we know to be true for virtually anything else. But we're in a culture that wants to be able to say Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 Christianity, that they can all be right. It's whatever's right to you. That's simply not true. It, It defies logic and two things that a 
oppose each other, one has to be wrong. If you and I collide in an intersection, and I, with all sincerity, tell the police officer, I had the green light and I believe it in the core of who I am. I know I had the green light. And that other person says the exact same thing. One of us simply has to be wrong, no matter how sincere we are. And we both might be able to get those who saw reality from our perspective. And it just doesn't matter how many believe the wrong thing, it's still wrong. On our flights, I watched this four-part documentary on a man they were bringing to trial who they thought was a Nazi guard at Treblinka in Poland that was responsible for killing tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of Jews. And interestingly, even a nation that possibly might not have gotten their hands dirty physically subscribed to a belief system that what was happening, this evil, terrible thing that was happening was permissible under the circumstances because they had taken on a, a belief system that was completely wrong and it was validated by hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of others that also aligned their belief system with them. So what I'm saying is it's possible for billions of people to be wrong about something. It's possible that Christians are wrong. If Islam is true and Jesus is a prophet and a good man, but he is not the son of God, then the tenets of Islam are true and we're wrong because Islam cannot be right and Christianity right at the same time. And the same is true of Hinduism or any other religion. But if the Bible is a reliable authority and Jesus is who he says he is and what the Bible says about heaven is true, then I want you to listen to these words. John 8, 12. Once again, Jesus spoke to the people and this time he said, I am the light for the whole world. Follow me and you won't be walking in the dark. You will have the light that gives you life. I don't think anyone, even those who don't think theologically, would believe that Jesus is talking about literal light. Clearly he's talking about spiritual light and spiritual darkness, right? Bring up that next passage. The next, uh, yeah, the, the next scripture, sorry. Acts 4.12 says this about Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can save people. His name is the only power in the world that has been given to save anyone. We must be saved through him. It could not be more clear that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way. And then finally is this, again in Jesus' word, John 14. Jesus answered, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and the only way to the father is through me. No wonder the religious leaders had to kill him because he taught what they were not teaching. Judaism, though it is the foundation on which Christianity is built, is not Christianity because where we depart 
our doctrine and belief system is that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the savior of the world and the only way to heaven. And if that is true, then Judaism can't be right. I want them to be right because I want everyone to know truth. Then Hinduism can't be right. If Christianity is right, if we can trust what Jesus says, then he is the only way. Here's the good news though. If there are a million ways to heaven, if anyone can get to heaven, you lose nothing through being a Christ follower. Because he's just one of the million ways. But if Jesus is the only way, then you lose everything by rejecting him as the son of God and the savior of the world. There's nobody that'll ever be forced, tricked, cast away by God. I believe every single person on the planet will have a moment in which they get to cross this decision for themselves. I don't even know that they'll call Jesus by his name. I was thinking the other day how lots of people call me PC. And my family calls me Christopher. Very few others do that. You don't get to call me Christopher is what I'm saying. Lisa has affectionate names for me which can't be repeated in public. They have to do with my physique and it's the whole thing. My kids call me dad. I'm the same person. So I don't know that all uh, Jesus isn't really even Jesus's actual name. It's the name translated that we can say and we use. And are we talking still to Jesus when we pray? Or we, yeah, absolutely. But I do believe that each one of us is given a moment in which we must accept or reject the truth of who he is and what he represents. And so this is tough. I don't ever want this to be a moment in which we celebrate and we relish in the fact that others are wrong. I think we approach it with great humility and deference and, 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 and become greater representation of the gentleness and the grace of Christ so that more can know him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and uh, just give yourself a second here of, of just a little bit of privacy, a little bit of anonymity. And I want you right where you are to just ask yourself this question. Do I believe that Jesus is the only way? And if I do, am I living my life in accordance with that belief? Because that is a significant belief system. Am I living my life in accordance with that belief system? And if I am, how many other people are impacted, invited, drawn to, attracted to Jesus because of the way I live my life? And if the evidence is that I'm not an inviting character, an inviting personality, a welcoming identity, that mirrors Jesus, then is this an opportunity I need to consider changing the way I live my life? 
remembering the grace that's been shown to me, the amazing opportunity I've had to answer this question in my own life, to accept him for who he is. Am I providing that same opportunity through my character, my personality, the way I treat people? And if no, every one of us gets moments like this to decide to change. And I love, I love that God is not us because he gives us grace and mercy to make these changes a thousand times over. When we would have given up on each other, after the second or third time. So God, let us begin this touchy subject. Let us meet it with humility and grace, with intellectual, emotional, and spiritual sincerity so that when we talk to people about our belief, we don't do it to degrade theirs or to even convince them but rather let them know, this is how I reached this belief. And I'm convinced that he is who he says he is. And I wanna be in heaven and so I wanna follow the path that he's laid for me. I want him to impact the way I speak and think and feel and the way I treat others and the way I relate to the world around me while I'm here. God, make that our prayer, not just now, but throughout this week, throughout the weeks to come and throughout this month until it begins to change who we are. And that's my prayer for each of us in Jesus' name, amen.